Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the director and writer for RMN, Christian Mungu. All right, everyone, I'm being joined right now by one of cinema's most world-renowned filmmakers, Christian Munjiwu, uh, who currently has directed a film that has been talked about for over a year since it premiered at last year's Cannes Film Festival, RMN. Christian, thank you so much for joining me here today on the podcast to talk about this film. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So the first thing I want to uh, start off with here is what was the beginning stages of where the idea for this movie came from? Was it a conversation that you had with somebody? Was it a news article? Was it just a general overall feeling that you felt uh, within your own community? Where did the story generate from? Uh, it was a news article, but a news article which very soon turned into a big scandal. So it was like big news, first of all, in Romania, and uh, a few days, weeks later, it was a big scandal in Europe somehow. So it turned into a news which was uh, immediately taken and quoted by a lot of uh, me- media agencies because of the p- particularity of this case. We have a lot of xenophobia. This is not necessarily a topic any longer. But what was particular here was that uh, in this uh, February 2020, right before COVID started, there was this news about this very small something between a village and a town in Romania, in Transylvania, in a in an area inhabited mostly by Hungarians. Uh, that uh, these people uh, turned against the idea of having foreign workers there in the local bakery. So the the real case is quite close as a starting point with what you see in the film. Um, The idea was that, you know, normally you would expect uh, in a community with, with a minority that people would be more tolerant for another minority, for people coming over. But on the contrary, somehow they were completely against and at the beginning it wasn't in the beginning it wasn't really clear why so what happened is that it was a very very small local scandal until somebody uh, had the idea of taping recording this town hall meeting that the mayor had uh, organized for them and that town hall meeting if you want is uh, what generated my film somehow 
and it has an equivalent in the film. That uh, recording still exists on the internet, just that it's in Hungarian, I had it translated. So um, the story came to me and it came to everybody. But of course, at the end, the film, it's just starting from there. And it fictionalizes quite a lot and it's way more complex and it has characters and it speaks about way more than just xenophobia. And first of all, it doesn't comment at all. It just presents the circumstances in which some people made some choices. And I thought that's you know, why I liked uh, starting from this idea and making a film is that I thought that this Transylvania that nobody really knows much about stands a lot for the world of today, a globalized world in which a lot of people of different languages and uh, religions start talking all of a sudden. And this kind of uh, dual discourse and this kind of xenophobia can happen anywhere in the world. That's my feeling. And this is why I have always insisted since Khan last year that, of course, any story needs to be set particularly particularly in one place. But this is a story about globalization, finally. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely understand that because we get a lot of different perspectives uh, from various characters in this movie. Although we are predominantly following uh, Matthias and uh, Celia, played by Marin uh, Grigori and Judith uh, State in this film. And yet I, I want to talk a bit about like casting uh, because you have to get actors who are completely believable in these roles that feel like people that you would experience in your normal everyday neighborhood. So there's that relatability and the audience can realize, oh, this is a story about us, no matter where we come from, no matter what language we speak. Can you talk to me a bit about like your casting process and how you found these actors? Thank you for the question. Um, I invest quite a lot of time in the casting process. And um, this one was particularly very difficult for me because mm -hmm. I need bilingual actors. So actors needed to speak uh, Romanian and Hungarian, Romanian and German, uh, English, French, Singali. There are a lot of languages in the film. And then what I do, it's not just that they need to be um, fit for the part and recognizable as just regular people by anybody in this world, but at the same time, they, they need to be very good as actors given the method that I use for my staging of situation, which is I'm just shooting in plan sequence in just one shot, one continuous shot for every scene. And this is difficult for an actor. And you need to make some, I don't know, some rehearsals before, just to make sure that they can be very precise and very natural all along the, the, the scene because if they can deliver one or two or three lines, okay, but you cannot rely on them for five, eight, 10, 15, or 17 minutes, there's this shot in the film of 17 minutes, then it's going to be very difficult to work with them. And I think I've seen a lot of men for this film because it was a bit difficult um, to find, most of the, of the Romanians of, of, of German origin have left in the last 30 years. But finally, I managed to, to find Marin, who speaks enough German that I could use for the part. And I liked working with him because at the same time, he's a big guy and a very menacing guy. But at the same time, he's like a big child. And, you know, he's humble somehow. And he just wants to be 
left alone and he needs somebody to love him and he's completely clueless about what kind of education he should be giving to his child in this changing world and on the other side i wanted some someone um who could stand for his opinion always and fight someone representing more the progressive side of the society and there i suspected from the beginning that i might be working with the uh, Judith Stati, who interprets Chila in the film, because I have been um, uh, casting her before in a film that I produced. I knew that she's very good, and uh, it was easier to get to her part. She's very, very natural. She hasn't started as an actress. She started as a dancer, and she's very hmm, uh, natural in front of the camera. Besides that scene when she she needed to be naked, that was a bit complicated for her, for her because it was for the first time. And for the other for the for the other uh, parts in the film, I really wanted for a long while to work with the very good actors that we have in Romania who are uh, Hungarians and they act in the Hungarian theaters, but they can speak Romanian as well. Normally, directors avoid them because they have an accent, but for this film, they were very good, and they brought something to to my film. Uh, nobody knows them. Not that you would know them, but even here locally. Nobody knows them. They are very good. And they they pass as, you know, everyday people, very regular people that you can meet on the street. And um, there was something else which was a bit complicated for this film. I had a, a child, a very small child. So I had to work with some non-professionals. And uh, the child, I managed to find him in the community over there in the villages around the, the, the place where we shot. But for the th- uh, three um, foreign workers, we couldn't um, we couldn't bring actors from uh, Sri Lanka in the middle of COVID, so they are fully unprofessional. One of them sells uh, burgers for a McDonald's, another one is a swimming uh, instructor, and the third third one works in a parking lot. So I made kind of a casting with them. I chose these three, and I think that they managed to. By the end of the film, they were somehow actors already. You definitely give them some really complex and challenging material to work with. Uh, very mature uh, for their age, too, I, I imagine, in terms of uh, the themes. So tell me a bit about gathering together this multilingual cast, putting them all in this town hall scene, 17 minutes, like you said. I think it's one of the most unbelievable scenes I, I have seen in recent memory uh, because of the degree of control the way that the frame fits in so many different characters. And yet it also has this rhythm to it where you're building up tension constantly throughout. I don't even remember how many minutes in I finally realized, oh my God, this hasn't cut away. I was completely lost in it. Tell me a bit about the challenges that go into not only finding the right camera angle to capture that scene, but then also the blocking that has to go on and how many moving parts there are. Yes. It's quite difficult to work like this, to be honest, not only for that scene, but in general, trying to block every other scene with just one position of the camera, or even if the camera moves, there are no cuts. And I would say that this is probably the most difficult way of staging situations. Actually, what you do, you need to stage a situation like in theater, except that only that it needs to work perfectly at least once. 
for the light, for the camera, but um, the most difficult thing, as, as you can imagine, is for, for the acting. Uh, it's just that I got used to work like this since four months. So I have some, I don't know, nearly 20 years since I worked like this. And I want to say something about this because it's not an ambition of showing that I can do complicated things. It comes from this, my way of understanding cinema somehow. The idea is that if you think about what's specific to cinema and not to any other art, it's its capacity of showing how time passes. Besides music, there's no other art that can show how time passes, a development, but only on condition that you don't use music. And then from, from that um, idea onwards, I built up this style in which the aim is that you won't notice the director and the filmmakers, not the cinematographer, not the director, the camera doesn't move unless it follows something moving in the shot. There are no funny angles. It's always walking, um, looking to the, into the eyes of the character. And then the next step is that you learn that you, you need to use a lot of off-camera, on the sound and even on the actions. But this is good for the spectator because it gives him this feeling that the film is bigger than what he sees. It's a bigger world. And it's always a subjective a portion of it that you will have as it is in life because finally we don't know what I don't know our, our friends and family are, are doing now we are just present to our only very subjective point of view when it turns to making a film with so many speaking parts I think there are 25 or 26 speaking parts in this very long scene it's complicated because because of the level of precision but and I had very little time to be honest I had one day of more or less rehearsing and explaining people how this is going to look, and then two days of shooting. And when we rehearsed at the beginning, I was only trying to uh, accustom them with this idea that, okay, so you would be on this side of the theater, of the room, and I don't know precisely how, but probably you are here and you are here, and you are on this other side talking to them, and somebody would come, and uh, we need to have it in the right rhythm from the beginning because there's no other option for me. There is no rhythm coming from, from the scissors. And, you know, normally people say, okay, yeah, I got it. So, and they laugh, or, okay, I'm going to be off camera for 17 minutes or whatever. Um, as much as you insist that it's going to be difficult, you know, people don't realize how difficult it's going to be. And on top, of course, when you shoot, you need to... Uh, bring some 150 to 200 extras that would make your life even more complicated on top of everybody else. And my way, my method of working is quite simple in the sense that I don't explain, I don't tell, I show every other actor what he needs to do. And I would play for him, first of all, and just tell him, so you're here, you take this one from here, come over here, adjust the microphone, tap in it, and you start talking and you say, people, just a second, are you okay? And I do this with all the 26 parts. But um, first of all, when I was blocking, I asked everybody else to give me half an hour. It was a very interesting town hall where they, they are still using uh, wood uh, for the fire in uh, inside for heating. So I got a, a lot of stand-ins, which are, were pieces of wood, small logs like this. And I placed them on different chairs just to make sure that I can see like 18 people at the same time. 
once I knew who sits where, I brought in the actors and I started rehearsing a little bit the dialogue only to realize that there was a problem, you know, uh, normally people in a scene like this talk one after another when you write the dialogue. And what I needed to do is to teach them how to speak on top of one another, because this is what people do in such in such situations. Those speaking on the microphone, they start talking and the others talk at the same time because they are in with some friends around. And from 26 pages of dialogue, I think that I ended up by having some 17 minutes of film. And I think that the final, the final thing which brought the right energy for this, for this shot was uh, in the second day. The first day was completely ruined. I have to say that I couldn't have at least one good take by the end of the day. So I asked the actors politely but firmly at the same time to make sure that they know their text better for the next day, like fully precisely because it's not if not it's going to be very difficult and the next day i i challenge another you know decision that you normally make when you have extras you know everybody tells them shut up shut up the actors are focusing uh, pretend that you're talking and you know at some point i told them look let's try let's try try differently this time don't pretend just talk and just react do whatever you want to do and, whoa, I couldn't shoot for a couple of takes, but little by little, they started getting the right rhythm. I started con directing them as a conductor, if you want, just telling them what's the right level of the conversation. And this helped the actors a lot. The actors all of a sudden had, had to be very, very careful to deliver their line in the right place. Nobody was polite. Nobody was waiting for, for, for them to, to say what, what they needed. And little by little, adjusting shot after shot, the things that were not working well, we got by the end of the 23rd, 24th, 25th take to having a couple of takes which were, let's say, pretty much okay in terms of rhythm. The only thing that I do in post-production to improve such scenes is that I can edit a lot in the dialogue on condition that people say the same thing always. So I had uh, three different sound engineers that captured the sound with uh, a lot of microphones. We had more than 25 uh, five microphones. So I needed like a week then to listen to everybody and to compose a kind of a, of, of a mixing, which is quite special because for once you can push and hear every other comment of somebody sitting in the audience. And, you know, the whole scene was supposed to be a little bit like a Greek choir, if you want. And it was very interesting that you could have the collective character in person over there commenting all the time to what these people were saying. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I know the ending to this movie has been discussed a lot. I, I've talked about it with every person that's seen the movie. I don't want to get into it because I don't want to reveal anything about the ending to people. But I do want to get your feeling on how do you feel that there are multiple interpretations of the ending? Did you have a set idea of what you specifically wanted people to take away from it? And hearing all these different interpretations, I mean, how, how do you feel that 
people can't really figure it out. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, actually, I do have my own interpretation. And whenever I make a film, I hope that most of it will travel to the spectator. Mm -hmm. That's my effort. That's my way of making films. Um, before shooting, while I write, I have several documents and one of them regards the levels of meaning of the story. But of course, then I try to, I don't know, hide them somehow in the story and not to have them through dialogue. And this is the most difficult thing for a film like this, having a lot of layers of meaning. How can you find the visual equivalent of some notions which are very abstract? How do you show anxiety and fear? How do you talk about truth and how relative truth became? How do you, how do you talk about this clash between the animal inside you and the human sides that you have? And I tried to come up with situations and signs, if you want, like visual signs and a lot of animals. And each of these animals means something. Each of the situations means something. And by the end of the film and of the end of the screenplay, I have to double check all the time that it's still realistic. Everything has a realistic explanation. But at the same time, the more you get to the end of the film, the more you have this feeling that, I don't know, it could be, if not supernatural, at least very, very subjective, like mm -hmm. things coming from a nightmare. You know, the anxiety, the fear in a nightmare is very real, but the things that provoke that fear, you, you cannot touch them. But this is the mechanism of fear and of anxiety. And it is connected to the end of the film in the sense that even if I had different interpretations, they didn't differ that much. What, what differed is the way people expressed things. For some people, they were seeing animals at the end of the film. Some other people were seeing humans. But some other people were seeing like embodiments of the fears of this main character, which is also a very good way of interpreting it. For some other people, it was not that important what, what was there in the forest. It was more important to understand that the character was in between two worlds, one which was dark and eventually corresponded to his inner self, and the other one which had this music and light and warmth. That's also a very good take for me. To be honest, I never, uh, I never planned that the ending would be this, uh, I don't know, to this level, this cryptical, cryptical? No, I don't think it exists, but you get the point. I thought that yes. it's going to be um, a, uh, a bit um, more obvious what I meant, but this balance for a filmmaker between not being didactical, not revealing the meaning in a verbal way and suggesting, it, it's, it's a very, very thin layer. And uh, I hope that, you know, I... I know that it's very difficult to ask people to watch a film twice. It's difficult nowadays to ask them to watch the film once. But I noticed that uh, people who watch the film twice manage to see that there are a lot of signs preparing you to understand what the ending is about. And if you don't get this immediately in a verbalizing way, 
if you get the fear, the anxiety, it means that you are there with the character and uh, that's enough for a first view for, for, for this kind of film. Last question before we go here very quickly. Your Palm d'Or winning film, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, has received quite a resurgence, especially here in the States since uh, Roe v. Wade got uh, struck down. I just want to know uh, what your thoughts are on the lasting impact of that film and how people have continued to discover it and cite it as a very, very important piece of contemporary cinema. I am glad, of course, but I'm glad because, you know, um, even if you get awards, the the only thing that uh, gives value to a film and validates it is time. If time passes well on top of a film, if you can watch it 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, and it's still relevant in terms of meaning and somehow, if not modern, at least coherent in terms of style, it means that you are in a good moment. And I feel that I can still watch four months without having to hide under a chair. It's still okay. And it's still relevant. I never, in terms of meaning, I never thought it's going to be this relevant today. It's very strange how things uh, change again. And what the other thing that I'm, I'm really pleased about that film about is that um, you can read a lot of um, history books about, I don't know, communism, totalitarian society, and you will find out what, what it was to live then. But watching this film, I hope that you feel a little bit. You feel the anxiety that we were feeling when we were young. You feel this idea that you are always being watched by somebody, that you cannot trust the other, that the other is abusive because the system abuses him and he feels entitled to abuse you. And um, I think this is this is what what what's really important because that's specific for cinema as well. I would say that besides the smell, it reveals very well the period that we lived when we were adolescents. Absolutely. Well, Christian, thank you so much for talking about RMN with me today, a film that I think time will also be very incredibly kind to, uh, as they have been to all of your films. And we can't wait to see what you have cupped up next. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Thank you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the director and writer for RMN, Christian Marlou, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. RMN is being released in theaters on April 28th by IFC Films. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support. Which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.